What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome to Business on the Brink, a production from iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works. In the last episode of our campaign on D&D TSR, Howard's struggles were waged and Gary Gygax was kicked out of the adventure when he rolled a natural one on his charisma saving throw. The new CEO thought she had the intelligence modifier to save the company and raise it to wealth and prosperity, not realizing she was dangling off a precipice above the pit of financial despair. So let's turn now to see how a group of friendly wizards brought TSR into their fold and saved them from ruin. And the new dungeons and epic challenges along the company's path to today. This is TSR, Wizards of the Coast, On the Brink. Okay, so uh, Ariel, uh, uh, my name's Jonathan, by the way. And I'm Ariel. I was about to say, are we not, are we, we're just assuming people have listened to the first half of this, and so we're not introducing I, ourselves? I mean, to me, it's like no time has passed at all, even though it has been two weeks two since we talked weeks. about it. Yeah, so uh, we have not met for two weeks, but honestly, in D&D terms for campaigns, that's, that's normal. It's not even, that's, that's good. That is good. Like, you're lucky if you get once a month. With yeah. a D&D campaign. I had a friend recently who was like, I want to do this this streaming D&D campaign. Do you want to join? We're doing it once a week. And I'm like, I can give you once every other month, my friend. Yeah, it is not an easy thing to do. But if you have not listened to our last episode, go ahead and do that. We'll wait. But in case you want a quick refresher, the uh, the first part of the story was all about Gary Gygax uh, founding TSR with a couple of his friends and how... That quickly grew out of a, a hobbyist curiosity into a fully-fledged publishing company. And then how there was this kind of crazy corporate takeover. Ooh, yeah. yeah. And Gygax was forced out of his own company. Uh, so when we left off, Lorraine Williams had just become the president and CEO. She had previously been a large investor in TSR. Mm-hmm. And 
effectively took over the shares of a couple of other founding members of the company. Kind of underhandedly. Yeah, all without Gygax knowing so that they could kind of uh, spring a surprise on him and effectively remove him from the company. They, They saw Gygax as being too conservative and they wanted to be able to make uh, more dramatic changes. Yeah, and and when they got rid of him, they got rid of a lot of the projects he was working on. So it seems to me that Lorraine really had this, like, I know how to get this company thriving and 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 soaring more than it is attitude. Um, but in the early 90s, Dungeons & Dragons and TSR started feeling a lot of market pressure uh, because a lot more RPGs, were coming out. Specifically, there was uh, one that was mentioned in a lot of the research we did, which was called Vampire the Masquerade by White Wolf Games. Local here to Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. They're out of Stone Mountain. I know. Or were. Quite a few people who used to work for them. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was a very popular RPG. It was actually a, a big competitor for Dungeons & Dragons. It became a LARP and all these other things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was another role-playing game company, Wizards of the Coast. Yep. Uh, so they, that was a company that was founded by Peter Adkinson in 1990. And uh, it also started off as just sort of a, a small business, a dream and a basement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and know, a couple of 20-setters. Right, right. And uh, again, this, this uh, company also would publish some role-playing games. But these were sometimes taking a slight liberties uh, by including information that wasn't always like, you know— Theirs? Yeah, they kind of had this idea that they wanted games that could be called, played across systems, from, yeah. from what I remember. Sort of like the generic universal role-playing system or GURPS. Yeah. Those were from Steve Jackson games, but yeah. Yeah, and and honestly, Wizards of the Coast, would, spoiler alert, would eventually get D&D there, kind of. Um, but, you know, they, they mentioned some other games, intellectual property, and it became a lawsuit, and it actually— uh, took a few years to, to sort it quite, all out. quite a few years to sort out. Um, but despite that, they had something in hand that would make them a major player in the, the <laughs> role-playing game arena. Uh, something in hand, huh? I see what you're doing there. Uh, that was completely by accident. So, I'm just that clever. So, Ariel. Yes. What's the deal? Oh, okay. I'll give it to you. Um, all right. So in 1993... Wizards of the Coast introduced a trading card game called Magic the Gathering. Oh, boy. Yes. Well, they introduced it at Gen Con, which Mm was, I think we mentioned before, a gaming convention started by Gary Gygax. Uh, And it's still around. Yep. And it is owned by Adkinson. Mm -hmm. uh, But he is no longer part of Wizards of the Coast. Another spoiler alert. Um, But at the time, they had to release the card game under a shell company because they were still dealing with this legal dispute, specifically with Palladium Books. Yeah. Um, and this card game was a very new trend, and it really picked up. Uh, fun fact, it was actually started as a – they wanted to make a board game. Mm-hmm. They wanted to make a robot kind of board game, and it was too expensive. And so somebody said, I have this idea for this trading card game. Baseball cards are really popular. Why don't we make a game – like baseball cards. Yeah, because that way you constantly have content that players want to go out and purchase. Same yeah. same sort of concept for establishing a really uh, successful role-playing game. I mean, Dungeons & Dragons, the reason why it was a success, or one of the reasons why, was that, well, you had to convince people to keep buying stuff after they got the mm-hmm. basic rules set. And that's where you would come out with expanded rules and modules 
trading game card games, they have that built in because you're never going to have all the cards of the set when you go yeah. out and buy it. Yeah, and you can't tell which cards you're going to have. So you might buy three of the same set just to get that one card you really want. Yeah, or 300 sets and hope that you can find it somewhere. I remember there are YouTube videos, by the way, of people un- unpackaging Magic the Gathering cards and they'll they'll wear, you know, latex gloves and everything so they don't get any oils on the cards. And I've seen one where, and I am not a Magic the Gathering player, but mm-hmm. I've seen one where the guy who was unpackaging it, he's going through, he's like, all right, this is a such and such. It's not terribly rare. This is a such and such. And then like the third or fourth card was this incredibly rare, incredibly valuable Magic the Gathering card. And you can see his hands shaking when he realizes what <laughs> he has in front of him. Uh, and it just it kind of drives home. Like this was an idea that struck a powerful chord in gamers. Yeah, and you think it would have been a lot cheaper to make than a board game, yeah. especially one that has Robo in the title, but it wasn't. It was actually <laughs> still pretty expensive to make because you got to make all these different packs. You've got to randomize them. Um, and so what they did was they, they went to the internet. They went to friends, investors. They begged for money, and they started selling stock in Garfield Games, which was a shell company that Magic the Gathering was released under. Um, this later on would cause issues because uh, they ended up with close to 500 individual investors, and they were going to have to report publicly if they hit 500. So they eventually had to do a buyback once Wizards of the Coast absorbed Garfield Games. I, I love it on the notes you say they sold too much stock, and at first I thought we were talking about a producer's kind of experience where <laughs> we've sold more ownership than there is of this company, and I was about to ask how that happened. But now I understand what you mean by that. I was, I was trying to type quickly, my <laughs> friend. So all of these retailers and consumers were taking all of this money they were planning to spend on Dungeons and Dra- Dragons, Mm-hmm. and starting to plan to spend it on these collectible card games or CCGs. They're also called trading card games. It's it's interchangeable. Yeah, because the idea being, it's sort of like something like Pokemon, the idea being that you could uh, buy these cards and then you would have friends and maybe you happen to have duplicates of a card that you don't need all the duplicates for. They have duplicates of a card you don't have, so you trade. And you know, that was the basis behind it. Now, mm-hmm. that being said, I don't know many people who did a lot of trades. I know a lot of people who did a lot of hoarding. Yeah. Uh, so it really it appealed not just to the player uh, psychology, but the collector psychology. Like, yeah. I've got to have the full set. Yeah. Um, additionally, during this time... In 1994, Wizards of the Coast bought a few other RPGs from other companies uh, to kind of publish and distribute. Um, And then in 1995, they hit a brink moment. Mm. They had uh, a lot of demand for a new line in the Magic the Gathering game. So... Called Fallen Empires. Yeah, this is where we start seeing another way of making a lot of money is that you can make sure that no one ever has the complete full set <laughs> because you can keep coming out with expansion sets for yes. your game. Yes, and uh, And so the idea was to uh, produce this this sort of expansion set, and uh, they went a little little hog wild. Yeah, they, they'd had some issues producing previous card sets, and so they offered to print to order. And then they got a whole bunch of orders. So somewhere in there, there was a mix-up between demand and supply, and they ended up with too much supply yeah. once the demand petered Slacked off. off. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is a common trend in, in gaming in the gaming industry. You have peaks and valleys, almost like the stock market. Yeah, and we talked about this in the TSR episode too about how the early 80s were such a huge boom for TSR that they had 
they essentially staked their what they thought their revenues were going to be in mm-hmm. the mid 80s based on how well they were doing in the early 80s yeah. but as it turns out reality does not always follow an upward trend no. year over year another part of the problem is they were printing so much fallen empires to order that they had to stop printing the core game so then you had people who maybe wanted fallen empires but couldn't get the core game so they weren't going to buy fallen empires so it's it's a little bit secular as well uh, Cir- circular yeah cyclical one of those, you guys. Uh, <laughs> it's been a long day. It's been a long day. But no, no, you're absolutely right is that uh, it's it's like if you were to buy a computer game and you go out and you want to buy the base game, but all you can find are the expansions to that mm-hmm. game and, and it tells you on the box that the basic game is not included in that, uh, that's a problem. So it's the exact same thing with Magic yeah. the Gathering. And around this time, you know, everybody's seeing that this collectible card game trend is picking up. So now you're getting competitors now. Wizards of the Coast did a pretty good job. They took Vampire the Masquerade, the White Wolf game, and made a deal to make it a card game with White Wolf. They had a a good relationship due to some former White Wolf employees moving over to Wizards of the Coast uh, for a good while. And they came out with a a card game called Jihad, which eventually got renamed to Vampire the Internal Struggle just because of— The the connotations yeah. of the word Jihad, yeah. Yeah. Even um, though it was spelled J-Y-H-A-D, but still. Yeah, and and then, you know, White Wolf couldn't make a Vampire the Masquerade card game because Wizards of the Coast had already made it. So they were also kind of taking the second most popular RPG out there, since they didn't own Dungeons & Dragons, mm-hmm. and capitalizing on it. While they could, while yeah. before it was too late. Um, and it was successful. It wasn't as successful as Magic the Gathering by far. And eventually White Wolf IP did revert back to White Wolf in 1996. And eventually they picked up the card game a little after that. And then White Wolf went away. And then somebody's relaunching that card game now. But we're getting off topic. Yeah, let's get back to Wizards of the Coast. So they are able to leverage this sort of uh, a relationship with White Wolf in order to market a game for a while. Uh, I'm assuming that those acquired uh, titles that they they got hold of that you you kind of alluded to earlier. I imagine they handled those perfectly. Um, they handled them as best as they could. Uh, they also had the same over like overprinting issue they had with their card game with so, these new RPGs. So too many copies of a game that just weren't mm-hmm. selling quite as well as they expected. Yeah, one was one was a very. Uh, open rule system, uh, similar to like the Amber Diceless role-playing game, which I'm sure unless you're a geek, you haven't heard of, but basically it it allowed a lot more creativity and a lot less rules yeah. as, as a way of role-play. Which is great if you have someone who's very capable at, at uh, being game master. Yeah. But if you don't, it is an incredibly frustrating experience. So they had, they had bought a similar game called Everway, and it was a cool concept, but they miscalculated demand. And in 1995, they closed the role-playing game line completely. Uh, Atkinson said they just couldn't give the games the time and the support they needed, company structure to to support and sell them and and build them out. It just wasn't working out. So they ended up selling off those Mm -hmm. properties to other companies, and they focused more on the Magic the Gathering line. Yes. And, you know, listeners who have listened to the first half of this episode, you might be going, I thought this was D&D. Where's D&D? Uh, we'll get there in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. 
the problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay, let's get back over to TSR for a second because we're going to get into this relationship between Wizards of the Coast and TSR. How was TSR trying to beat their competitors during the same time that Wizards of the Coast is operating? You know, TSR was in this this sort of doldrums of seeing the RPG market kind of hitting this this low spot as the trading card game was going up. Same problem though that Wizards of the Coast was facing in many ways as well. Mm-hmm. What were they doing? Okay, so they decided to expand into more modern media instead of just books. So mm-hmm. things like CDs and VHSs for their games that you could play along with the games. <laughs> oh, boy. I remember that era. Mm-hmm. And, like, putting their rules on CD-ROMs, which is a good idea. You know, a CD takes a lot less space than a book. Yeah, it's not always the most convenient to uh, refer to in the middle of a gaming session, but I remember having... Uh, uh, electronic file versions of player's manual and things like that so I could, you know, not have to have an entire shelf dedicated mm-hmm. to the rule set. I mean, it does assume you're playing near a computer, but if, you know, the computer trend is picking up, then it's not a, a horribly off-base assumption. Um, but all of these things cost a lot more money than printing books do. And Money was already tight because of all of the mismanagement up to this point of TSR and all of the infighting and then also this decline in the market. Um, So they did something really risky. And what was that? Uh, They took their distributor, Random House, Mm -hmm. and they shipped them a ton of product because Random House paid for product when they received it, not when they sold it. Yeah. Now, we talked about this being an issue with some of the other companies we've covered in the past, like Borders, where companies would have to uh, try and and manage this because, you know, you would have stores paying for inventory but being unable to move it, and that ended up being a big issue. So, yeah, this is a bit of a, you know, 
as long as Random House is still paying us for whatever we're delivering to them, mm-hmm. let's just keep delivering it and 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 selling it becomes their problem, not our problem. Yes. But then they had to make a deal with their printer because, of course, they're having money troubles. And so in order to help pay with the debt that inevitably printing all the stock would cause, they made a deal with the printer saying, we won't use anybody else to print our materials other than you. Mm-hmm. And so then the printer could take advantage of that and did and started raising their prices. So now they're kind of getting caught in a in a clamp here. They're having to yeah. pay more to produce stuff. And the only way they're making money is by sending more stuff to the publisher or the uh, the distributor, I should say. Mm-hmm. So they're really it, – it's actually costing them more to do the thing they need to do in order to generate the revenue they're making. Yeah, And honestly, I would think that the printer would look at this and say, they don't have enough money. This is not a good deal to make. But for some reason, they did. Mm. And then everything went sour. So it, <laughs> it seemed to work for a bit. In 1996, Random House sent a whole bunch of product they couldn't sell, didn't sell, back to TSR. And the deal was if they sent it back, they could get a refund. And they were due, after selling all of this, sending all of this product back, millions of dollars worth of refund. So you've got a company where money was tight. They have to pay more for their printing from their printer. Mm-hmm. They have been generating revenue simply by sending stuff off to a distributor. The distributor then says, all right, well, I need a rebate, a refund on all this stuff. Here's all the stuff that we couldn't sell. And I'm assuming they didn't have a whole lot of cash on hand to make good on that. No, no. So now they're even more in debt. They had to lay off employees. And then the printer, who got tired of all the debt and not getting paid, said, okay, we're going to stop printing books. Mm, And you're not allowed to go anywhere else. Yeah, so you can't pay the printer, you can't pay the distributor, you can't pay your debt, and you can't sell your overstock. And where does this leave you? Um, I'm guessing hoping for a miracle. <laughs> Which they would get, but not before they were $30 million in debt Oof. and on the edge of bankruptcy. So at this point, you probably have Gary Gygax off in some corner somewhere saying – you reap what you sow. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, Gygax, like like I said earlier, Gygax, one of the big complaints that his partners leveled against him was that they felt he was too conservative. And it's quite possible that had Gygax stayed uh, a, a leader in the organization that they still would have faced these problems. We can't say for sure that they wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's it's – I'm certain that he felt that this was a case of karma in many ways. Probably, probably. All right, so now we're going to go back to Wizards of the Coast. Mm-hmm. I hate splitting the party. Okay, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a role playing term for people who don't do it. Yeah, it's it's the thing where the dungeon master always says, "Yes, this is always a good idea." Yeah, because to split your party up into 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 half so that you're half as capable as you were before, and half your players sit around waiting, doing nothing. Yeah. Okay, so back in 1995, Wizards of the Coast RP div- division is gone. Yeah. But they're still plugging away because they've got Magic the Gathering. And that's the license to print money. Yes. Um, and their staff had grown up to 250 employees. They were no longer in a basement. Which is good because I think it'd be crowded otherwise. <laughs> yeah. As we said, in 1996, they dropped the Vampire card game. Yep. Uh, and they were trying to recover from the overprint of Fallen Empires. You know, they had another supplement, uh, which is another – line, storyline that they sold. That was a flop. And then uh, they had a big break before they released another supplement. They had an eighth month, eight month break. Yeah. So they were just just selling the the core game and the available supplements yes. at that point. Yes. 
for eight months. And that does, like, you think eight months, that's not that long. But, I mean, that's eight months without a new product to put on the market. Mm -hmm. It had been the longest span of time between releasing their supplements Mm -hmm. that they had had up to that point. Mm -hmm. In 1997, something really good happened. For the company. For Wizards of the Coast. Yeah. (laughs) And also for TSR, but we'll get there. So the first thing that happens is Wizards of the Coast gets the U.S. patent for trading card games. Which... Blows my mind that you could patent a trading card game. Uh, it it blows my mind that it was a new enough concept, all the way in the nineties. Yeah, that they were able to get the patent for it in the first place. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, so they turned that around and briefly tried to use it to get other uh, collectible card game companies to sign licensing agreements, saying, "Hey, this is our patent. You're copying it." Yeah, you have to you have to uh, pay us a fee if you want to be able to use this. Yeah, only a few people did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then they got a deal with Nintendo because they've got this patent to manufacture Pokemon trading card games, create and manufacture, actually, um, for anywhere outside of Asia. So Europe, North America, mm-hmm. South America. And, and I don't know if you know this, but Pokemons is a pretty popular uh, IP. Yeah. If Magic the Gathering is for geeks, Pokemon is for children, which is basically everybody else. Yeah. Ch- um, <laughs> children and, and people who are maybe three years younger than I am. Yeah, I, I do like Pokemon. Yeah. Well. Um, and 10 years younger than I am then. <laughs> and this made them a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, in 1997, there was a bidding war on TSR because, as we said, they're 1996, they hit the edge of bankruptcy. There were a few bidders, but uh-huh. two of them were Five Rings Publishing and Wizards of the Coast. Uh, Five Rings Publishing didn't have enough money to buy TSR, so they went to Wizards of the Coast and said, hey, we'll help you win this bidding war if you promise to buy us when you buy TSR. And so they did. All right. So we get Wizards of the Coast coming in and buying out TSR. Uh, It was for the princely sum of $25 million and then also buying Five Rings Publishing. And now Wizards of the Coast... Not only were they back in the role-playing game business, the one that they had tried Mm -hmm. earlier in the early 90s, now they had the flagship role-playing game, the the game that everyone thinks of when you hear the phrase role-playing game, Dungeons & Dragons being arguably the first RPG. uh, It now is their property. And so now that they own the granddaddy of all RPGs, There was just the one small task ahead of them, turning it into a money-making business again. Yeah, but they were on a good track. It only took them three months to do that, according to an article in Geek and Sundry, which I'm going to assume is pretty accurate. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, and it's really interesting also because with Wizards of the Coast, now you have a, a totally different party coming in to take over the leadership of TSR. Mm -hmm. Uh, The previous leadership obviously had alienated Gary Gygax. And uh, it is interesting that Adkinson thought, I want to kind of mend some fences here, uh, maybe build a bridge back to Gary Gygax. Uh, clearly, Adkinson had some some sort of fond associations with Gygax and mm-hmm. Dungeons & Dragons. So it is interesting that he made some efforts to kind of patch things up. Yeah, um, I, I think he gave some money and he just, he really smoothed over relations with the entire family. I think it's good because there have been so many like lawsuits and struggles over IP between TSR and Gygax after he left. Yeah. Because he didn't stop writing games. Yeah, no, he was still 
it, it was definitely – there was a, a lot of animosity there mm-hmm. and a lot of disagreements over who owned what concepts in in gamification in general. So it was nice to see there being a, a little bit of a reconciliation. Yeah. All right. So once Wizards of the Coast bought TSR – uh, to try to make it more profitable, they, other than smoothing things over with Gary, uh, they offered the TSR developers jobs at Wizards of the Coast. Yep. Which is pretty upstanding of them. Yep. Uh, they relocated those people to Seattle um, and the company, TSR, to Seattle. Uh, they also rehired some of the game designers who had been laid off due to the financial trouble. So that was nice, um, which is smart, too, because you've got all these games in development. You want the people who are working on them. Otherwise, to, to it see might, them through, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, they might come out disjointed as you change creative hands. Yeah, it might turn into that one module we talked about in the first episode. Yeah, yeah. And then they did sell off D&D campaigns that weren't selling super well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I heard some accounts that they were selling them to fan groups. So people still loved them. They weren't making them completely obsolete, but they were taking them off of their plate. Gotcha. And this is about the time when they start focusing on the next generation of the rule set for Dungeons & Dragons. At this point, uh, it was AD&D 2nd Edition. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it was at the 3rd Edition where they just went right back to Dungeons & Dragons. They dropped the Advanced from uh, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. But I might be wrong about that. Uh, The reason why I say I might be wrong about that is because, full disclosure, folks, I stopped playing after AD&D 2nd Edition so because uh, I, I took a look at the rule set for, for Edition 3 and said, uh, no, thank you. See, that's when I started, and that's why I thought D&D was such a complicated game. Yeah, no. It, we could do a full episode describing why the 3rd Edition rules were such a huge departure and so, like, mind-bogglingly difficult. They would address this with a half generation with 3.5. Yeah. So that already tells you that things didn't go quite as planned if they have to do an update uh, halfway through the generation of the rule set. But they had some great games in the third edition. Again, we're getting off point. Jonathan and I are horrible, terrible geeks. Um, <laughs> no, we're awesome geeks. We're, we're terrible, awesome. terrible business storytellers. Oh, we're not terrible. We're wonderful business storytellers. Okay, so Ryan Dancy, who had owned Five Rings Publishing, we talked about earlier, went in with Wizards of the Coast for TSR, um, became the head of Wizards of the Coast's role-playing game department, and then Five Rings Publishing, which had been standing alone, owned by Wizards of the Coast, but still its own company, got absorbed into Wizards of the Coast. Mm -hmm. And then in December of 1998, we got one of the greatest computer games of all time, Baldur's Gate. Uh, It's an interplay title uh, that had the licensed uh, uh, permission to publish a game set in the Dungeons & Dragons universe. And uh, that's a... That's a company that we'll probably have to cover in a future episode because they have their own dramatic story. Um, Baldur's Gate, the Baldur's Gate games, by the way, some of my favorite uh, D&D-based computer games. I've I've never played them. They did go away for a while. Like we said, we could do an entire entire episode on Interplay, and we'll briefly touch on them later. But uh, they went away for a while, and now Baldur's Gate is back uh, in 2019 when we're recording this. There was a new trailer out from E3. Looks super creepy. Yeah, it, it it it's lacking my favorite entity from Baldur's Gate, which is Boo, the miniature giant space hamster. Oh, that's sorry. it's a giant space hamster that's the size of a regular hamster. I'll tell you more about it while we go to break. Yay. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So we've got Wizards of the Coast now in charge of TSR, Mm -hmm. taking taking charge of the development of Dungeons & Dragons. They are ready to really push into launching the third edition rule set for D&D that would be the next big overhaul and hopefully the next big success for the role-playing game. But that was just before something else that would really shake things up happened. Yeah, so uh, right before they released third edition, uh, Hasbro acquired Wizards of the Coast. So now a bigger fish has chomped up the big fish of Wizards of the Coast. Yes. They had actually had interest in buying Wizards of the Coast since 1994, uh, but they didn't want to pay quite as much as the company was worth. But once Wizards of the Coast got the Pokemon deal, uh, it it was it was even harder for Hasbro to say no. Yeah. So in 1999, that's when Hasbro bought Wizards of the Coast for $325 million. So 10 times the amount that Wizards of the Coast would have paid for TSR. Yeah. I read in some articles that they only had interest in the collectible card games, not so much in D&D. So this could have possibly been a true brink moment for D&D. It might have been to a point where, you know, the new corporate overlords say, don't even bother making this game anymore. Yeah. Um, Now, this means that anybody who didn't sell back their Garfield game stock, it shot through the roof. So people who held on to that ended up making serious bank. From the very beginning, yes. Also, when Hasbro acquired Wizards of the Coast, they agreed to give a portion of their outstanding shares to private stockholders in Wizards of – who had stock in Wizards of the Coast. It was a part of the 
the the acquisition deal. Yeah. yeah. So then we get to 2000. This is when the third edition Dungeons and Dragons rule set comes out and, and introduced the D20 system, which uh, you would think I'd be able to understand because AD&D first edition was a crazy convoluted system. Mm-hmm. But after trying to understand it a few times, I gave up. But D20 was largely meant to be a system that also could span different types of role-playing games. The idea being that you create a basic framework of rules that could then apply to lots of different genres of games. So you could have D&D, which was a D20 system, but you could also have a different RPG that was also a D20 system. And once you had the understanding of how one worked, you theoretically knew how they all worked. Yes, and and this was their goal with the system because Wizards of the Coast's idea was that the system makes money, the campaigns don't. I mean, the campaigns make money, but not as much as the system does. Mm-hmm. So they came out with the Open Gaming License and the D20 System Trademark License, which meant that other people who wanted to write adventures and supplements to fit the D20 system could, but this also saturated the market with a lot of Dungeons & Dragons supplements and also, um, you know, not all of them were good. Yeah. This kind of makes me think of the old days of the Atari game system where uh, Atari also looked into making lots of money by opening up that that kind of uh, uh, approach. And it ended up flooding the market to the point where it completely destroyed the home video game market. That's when we got the video game crash of 1983. So in a way... They were kind of playing with fire here. There was mm-hmm. the possibility that they might do the same thing for D&D that the video game industry did for home video games back in the early 80s. Yeah. Now, during this time, Wizards of the Coast also pushed along their own RPG development, more materials for D&D that they were making, uh, pushing existing campaigns like Greyhawk. Uh, they even got worked with another company to make a D20 version of Call of Cthulhu, which wasn't their game, but it's a fun game. Um. <laughs> yeah, if, you, if, you, if you're tired of playing games where your character is either going to ascend into deity-like status or die, you can play Call of Cthulhu, where your character will either go crazy or die, or go crazy and then die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> And then, of course, Wizards of the Coast was working on their next big thing, a completely new campaign to release. They, they sort of used some, some forms of crowdsourcing to develop it to make sure that this campaign they were building to release to the public to garner new excitement would be what the public wanted. Because TSR was releasing a bunch of materials back in the day, but they didn't always know what the market demand was. So they were yeah. kind of developing in a void. Meanwhile, we started to see some tensions develop due to the acquisition, which is not unusual. You often will see there's corporate culture differences between the different entities involved in mergers and acquisitions. In this case, uh, it involved more than just that. It also involved the timing where uh, it was getting to the point where the agreements for people to receive um, uh essentially profit sharing from the Pokemon game, those agreements were expiring. So a lot of people were leaving because they were like, well, you know, the whole thing that was an incentive for me to stay is gone. I'm not super comfortable with the corporate culture here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that even included Adkinson, the guy who the guy who had uh, created Wizards of the Coast in the first place, who felt that because of this new corporate relationship, he really didn't have the creative control over the company that he once had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, some of the personnel who had worked for Wizards of the Coast went to work for Nintendo, and Nintendo started developing their own Pokemon games. 
And even to the even like to the point where Wizards of the Coast had developed a p- couple new Pokemon expansions, mm-hmm. and Nintendo said no, you can't release those. And it led to a lawsuit between Wizards of the Coast and Nintendo in 2003 over breach of contract, because again, Wizards of the Coast was supposed to be doing all of that in America and in mm-hmm. Europe and such. Um, they resolved the dispute later that year. They said we don't need to go yep. into further arbitration. So they settled out of court. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that wasn't the last of of the turmoil after Hasbro's acquisition. So they shut down their interactive unit, <sighs> which is important because this is where the computer games landed that um, Wizards of the Coast and TSR had. Yeah. And those got sold off to another company in 2001 and eventually landed with Atari. Yeah. Or a company that had the name of Atari yeah. but wasn't the same Atari as yeah. the Atari of it. We'll have to do an episode about Atari that'll – that's a heartbreaker. It is. It it's is. It's also crazy. You know, there's there's a lot of brinking happening in the gaming industry yeah, in general. Yeah. Uh, it's a tough it's a tough market. Yeah. Hasbro also sold both conventions that Wizards of the Coast owned, Origins, which they had bought a while back to basically have Magic the Gathering tournaments. Yeah. And then Gen Con, which Adkinson had bought from Gary Gygax. Yeah. Origins actually occurred here in Atlanta one year. It coincided with Dragon Con. It became one big convention, Dragon Con and Origins. And that was the first time I ever encountered Magic the Gathering. It's just a little insight from Jonathan's past (laughs) life. It's super interesting. (laughs) So they sold the conventions in 2002. Yeah. Um, Interplay ended up having big financial troubles, as we said. They had their own brink moment. uh, Because now that Atari on these... The, the video game. The licenses. The licenses. Uh, uh, Interplay couldn't afford to pay them the royalties. Ugh. So that was a whole big problem. Uh, it's an, an issue for another episode. Now, there were problems with uh-huh. the third generation rule set. As you said. So the company tried to address this by releasing 3.5 rules in 2003. But this... This was a problem that was there was no easy solution out of mm-hmm. because people were having legitimate complaints about the third generation rule set. Uh, so fixing that was a priority. But then you have the issue of coming out with a brand new subset of rules shortly after you've released the previous set. And people felt like, oh, well, now this is too close together because now you're asking me to buy all these basic – campaign or basic rules books. I just again. bought the last one. Yeah, and these are not cheap. These can no. be like forty dollars, fifty dollars a a a book. So you could say like I just spent two hundred and fifty bucks a couple of years ago to buy this game. Are you telling me I have to spend another two hundred and fifty dollars to make it playable? So this was there was again just no good way mm-hmm. out of that situation. And and retailers felt the same way. We just stocked up on edition three. You want us to stock up on edition three point five? Yeah. So that was a problem. And then in 2004, Hasbro decided to close all of the Wizards of the Coast's physical stores. Yeah, these were the actual brick-and-mortar locations mm-hmm. where Wizards of the Coast could sell their products. Yeah, and and then also in 2004, we got the release of World of Warcraft, which once again kind of starts edging into – it's it's the next trend. Yeah, so like the trading card game took a big bite out of RPG sales as, as gamer interests started to shift. And then you get the massively multiplayer online role-playing game – uh, MMORPG trend mm-hmm. starting, and that starts to take a bite out of traditional RPGs and uh, and trading card games. And there had been other MMORPGs before World of Warcraft, 
But it took it to a new level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was Ultima Online and there was EverQuest. EverQuest. Which everyone yeah. called EverCrack. Yes. At the time. But then again, everyone called Magic of the, Magic the Gathering crack for players, too. Yeah. Because, again, both of these new genres, they were interesting, they were different, and they had enough of the elements of the stuff that drew people to fantasy role-playing games to really hit, like, all the little pleasure centers mm-hmm. in the brain and get people eager to play them. Yes. So all of this, mm-hmm. all of this led to 2005 when Hasbro started rounds uh, of layoffs during the holidays oh. for their D&D division. Yeah, that's – there's never a good time to get a layoff notification, but during the holidays, oh, yeah. it's happened to me before. It is not easy. No, no. Um Despite all this, though, in 2006, Wizards of the Coast hit a billion dollars in sales. So, you know, it's a tumultuous industry to be sure, Mm -hmm. but they were still charging ahead. Yeah. And this is also another problem of being part of a larger entity, right, is that your division might be doing well, but if other divisions within that same entity aren't doing well – you might still feel the effects of that. So that's that's the other danger of joining forces with an even larger company. Yeah, but D&D was making plans to recover from that. Yeah, with another edition, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, fourth edition. <laughs> yeah, this was, uh, this was an, one. announced in 2007. Uh, fourth edition's mm, okay. It's not the worst. <laughs> Isn't that the one where you had like sub-abilities in various classes that made it yes. really, you know, no, I don't like that set at all. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyhow, a lot of people did. Uh, and d finally had value in Hasbro again. Yeah. Uh, they were able to, to uh, get back in the good graces of the powers that be. Yeah. Um, also, along with 4th Edition, they started saying you needed miniatures as a part of your gameplay. I'm going to say you don't. But it's an awful lot of fun to have them. It makes it a lot easier to visualize what's happening. Yeah. Um, and then in, we're getting more to, closer to today. In 2009, uh, Wizards of the Coast made a big push to stop a bunch of online retailers from selling PDFs of their books, uh, which led to a bunch of fan outrage because fans were like, I just bought this PDF of a book, but I haven't downloaded it yet. And now the person I bought it from can't give it to me. Yeah. And you can understand the reason why they wanted to go after that because PDFs are easily copyable. So mm-hmm. there were a lot of uh, unlawful uh, copies. Yeah. Or maybe chaotic evil copies. Chaotic chaotic evil. Maybe chaotic neutral. Maybe chaotic neutral <laughs> if you're being super generous. But there were a lot of uh, copies that were not authorized that were starting to make their way onto mm-hmm. file sharing sites. And uh, obviously that's a huge threat to a publishing business. If people can get hold of the rule sets for free – then they're not going to pay the money to get them from the the authorized source. Yeah. Um, despite this, they had year-over-year profits in 2013. Uh, some sources cited Wizards of the Coast, that acquisition being the reason Hasbro remained profitable during those years because a bunch of game companies were seeing declines. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 2013, Wizards of the Coast very quickly lost 11.1% of its market value. I, I mean, like, in one day. What? Like, <laughs> what the heck happened in that day? So they were having a, a Magic Online Championship series, and it crashed. And they were already known for for having poor customer service for their online division, because uh, you could you could buy your cards in person and play physically, or you could buy cards online and play online. So if you're playing an online championship, and so I had 
I have an acquaintance who I used to game with who paid for a large portion, if not all, of his college career playing Magic the Gathering. So some of these had cash prizes. He probably didn't pay for all of his college, but he won a lot of cash prizes through these so, championships. So you could say, uh, not from the cash prizes part, but you could say this would be sort of equivalent of uh, of uh, a network losing all feed service during, say, a major sporting event like the Super Bowl. Yeah. And that obviously that would, uh, that would elicit a response from yeah. the audience. Yeah. Yeah. In this case, a more than 10% drop in market value. Well, and that's that's rough. The reason why it was such a large loss is because 30 to 40% of their revenue at the time, according to Forbes, were related to their online product, mm. to the online version of So if of the your game. online service is suffering problems, mm-hmm. that's a major threat to your revenue. Yeah. And, and in tournaments, it's it's stacked and there's their brackets and things like that. So it's a whole big deal. Um, back to D&D a little bit. In August of 2014, we got 5th edition. Yes. Uh, finally, a correct apology for editions 3, 3.5, <laughs> and, and 4. four. But at this point, they aren't calling it 5th edition. They're just calling it D&D. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, in some ways, it's a lot closer to 2nd edition rules, and that's mm-hmm. why I think it's better. So I like, I like how they keep like, we had advanced D&D until they realized it was the best system, and then they just named it D&D. And then they had a bunch of failed systems until they found another one, 5th edition, which they're like, okay, now we're just going to call it this D&D, and we're going to yeah. pretend the rest— <laughs> Never happened, yeah. I mean, that's not true. You can still get those source books. And, and they still have problems, too. I mean, like, yeah. Dragonborn, come on. <sighs> you know, it, to each their come own. Tieflings, come on. Don't. <laughs> I like tieflings. Okay. Uh but in 2014, we also got Hearthstone, which was Blizzard and World of Warcraft's answer to Magic the Gathering. Online. Yeah, because it's an online trading card game, an incredibly popular online trading card game. Yeah. One that, one that still gets a lot of views on things like Twitch. Yes. Yeah. Um, since that time, Wizards of the Coast and Dungeons and Dragons have done uh, crossovers between the games. Mm-hmm. So you can have D&D campaigns in Magic settings. Yep. Uh, in 2018, Magic made Magic the Gathering made a new like commitment to its esports with a, a a new program with a 10 million dollar prize pool. Yikes! Yeah, um, we started getting D and D live events where they'd set up sound stages and celebrities and and streamers and online personalities would come and play D and D. Fans could watch. There'd be cosplayers. You could watch it online if you couldn't get there personally. I would say that you even saw. Uh, podcasts like well first it was you had my, critical role people there you had critical role but you also have like my brother my brother and me mm-hmm. where the, for a special episode they played dungeons and dragons it was such a huge hit that they launched a new show the adventure zone yes. and the first several uh seasons of the adventure well really i guess you could say the first arc of the adventure zone uh was all dungeons and dragons and i think that also helped raise the profile of the game among an audience that you know, probably was adjacent to role-playing games, but not necessarily players of it. And I think mm-hmm. it's really those sort of things. We've seen like this kind of uh, uh, new embrace of D&D in general and role uh, – or D&D in particular and role-playing games in general in uh, in popular culture. You yeah. see it in like Stranger Things as mm-hmm. another example. It's a show that has 
has uh, demonstrated a D&D campaign being run completely incorrectly. But other yeah. than that, it was yeah. great. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, even now, like uh, in 2019, they announced that the Russo brothers who – did a, have done a bunch of Marvel stuff, are working on an animated series for Netflix for Magic the Gathering. Yeah. So there had been some, like, a few rumors I saw that Hasbro might be looking to sell Wizards of the Coast in 2021, but mm. the announcement of this animated show bumped up Hasbro's stock 6.2%. So Probably reconsidering that. Maybe. I, yeah. I don't know. It's too early to tell. Now, there are a few things we did skip over in these two parts mm-hmm. that, uh, you know... Probably a whole lot. Yeah, there's just too much to talk about we would have had to have done a whole mini series and honestly it's just it's it you guys don't need to hear us geek mm-hmm. out about D that many times but i do want to take a moment to acknowledge that while we did not cover dungeons and dragons the motion picture we know it existed we just pr- like to pretend it didn't and every so often there are rumors of a new dungeons and dragons movie i know uh joe i cannot say his name manglianello Oh, oh, Pee Wee Herman's boyfriend uh, from the Pee Wee Herman <laughs> Netflix special. He's a huge Dungeons and Dragons fan. Yes, and he wants he wants to do a movie. That's that yeah. that's been a rumor for a while now. Yeah, at least. Uh, yeah. Between the rumors of him being in DC films and a D and D film, there's there's a lot of potential there. Yeah. Well, this was a lot of fun to look into. It was uh, you know, obviously a, a subject that's near and dear to our hearts because we're both. Uh, at least former gamers, you still play uh, some at least live action role playing uh, games. Very occasionally. <laughs> yeah, I, I never get to play anything anymore, but I do love the genre. And uh, it has been a really interesting ride, a roller coaster, really, for both TSR and Wizards of the Coast. I think the reason they're both still around is because as they saw the market starting to shift, they assessed what wasn't working and what was and tried to fix it, other other than infighting and coups. Like, you yeah. can't necessarily help that. I think it's one of those things also that we've seen, like, with Disney, where when you get a new generation that has reached the age where, which I, I always think of as being, like, in the, the tweens and early teens, the the prime age to target people for escapism gaming, uh, that's the, the perfect time to release a new edition mm-hmm. of rules uh, yeah. because that way you don't have to worry about them just inheriting their older siblings or their parents' rule sets and you make everybody go out and yeah pay a whole bunch of money <laughs> again. You're right. Um, but that's it for today. You know, we will have you know, we've got a lot more episodes planned. We've got tons of great suggestions from you listeners. Please keep sending them in. Well, yeah. if they want to keep sending them in, Ariel, how would they do that? Well, they do that by emailing us at feedback at thebrinkpodcast.show. Yeah, and you can always go to our website. That's thebrinkpodcast.show. You'll find an archive of all of our past episodes. You can listen to all of them. And if you see that we're missing one, then email that address that Ariel was talking about. Yeah. Also, you know, if you like our show, tell your friends about it. You know, maybe maybe leave us a positive review. If you don't like our show, tell your enemies about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know that's or, an old and a bad joke. Or you can always like even send us, you know, things like, hey, I love your show, but have you ever thought of doing such and such? Because, yeah. you know, part of this uh, is all about hearing back from you guys and what you enjoy and what you want more of. And we'll make sure that we do our best to meet those expectations. And until next time, I have been Jonathan Strickland. And I've been Ariel Kasten. Business on the Brink is a production of iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.